welcome to Authors in Conversation, the United States in the World series podcast from Cornell University Press. I'm so excited to be talking to you today about your book. Um, my name is Judy Wu. I'm one of the series editors for the US in the World series published by Cornell University Press. And I'm so happy to be here with Amanda Bozar. Uh, she's the author of An American Brothel, Sex and Diplomacy During the Vietnam War, and it just came out in 2022. So congratulations, Amanda. Thank you. Great to be um, talking to you. Well, I wanted to ask you what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, it. I think like a lot of projects, it, it started, you know, someplace a little bit different. Uh, this is not the book I, I planned to write when I first started kind of visualizing what my dissertation and then first book was going to be. And I knew that I wanted to do something in social history. And I thought that I wanted to do Vietnam War era. Um, I did my MA thesis focused around Lyndon Johnson. And I just kind of really fell in love with the social aspects of, of studying the war, but wanted to stay connected to foreign relations. Um, and over time, I just kept coming back to this idea of how do civilians impact war in different ways. Um, and, and this focus on non-state actors and every source I ever looked at seemed to mention in some way women or girlfriends or prostitutes or some interaction with South Vietnamese women in some way, usually through the lens of an American soldier. Um, and I wanted to know, you know, this is so prevalent and it's been studied in other wars, but it hadn't been studied for Vietnam in, you know, a monograph length uh, reflection. And so I was just hoping to kind of dive into that a little bit. And over time, it, it took on, you know, multiple different lenses into these types of relationships. And I found that like friendship became a really fruitful avenue to study. I looked at sexual assault and rape. I looked at issues, um, you know, what happens afterwards when there are, you know, mixed race children and there are orphans and other types of issues that happened. And so it became in some ways a, a much bigger project than I had kind of foreseen it becoming. Um, but I was, once I kind of started seeing all the pieces, I, I felt like I needed to keep them together. And so um, that's how it kind of took on all of those lenses into one book. That's great. Thank you so much. I want to just read one of your really fantastic many passages in your book. Um, but I thought this one was especially um, powerful. So you write on page 16, sex and war overlapped in unexpected places during Vietnam including the American strategy of maintaining a large rear echelon force, North Vietnam's anti-American propaganda campaigns, and the constant barrage of media coverage on life in Vietnam. And so that, I think, um, just gets at some of the larger implications of these social and intimate relationships that you're, that you're describing. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you think are the big takeaways, the big arguments of your work. Yeah, I think that, you know, what I was getting to there and, and just kept coming back was, again, this prevalence. It, it's mentioned kind of everywhere and I wanted to see how far it went. And very quickly, I realized it went all the way up in the United States to the top and it was talked about among you know leadership in South Vietnam as well. And they had a lot of concerns and starting you know even before like major American escalation in the early sixties, you have the Zian family and, and they're all extremely concerned about American behavior on the, on the ground. Um, North Vietnam uses this a lot as well throughout the entire conflict, and they're able to kind of talk about, you know, what is it that American soldiers are doing here? 
you know, from a political stance, but also a cultural stance. What are the cultural impacts going to be? Um, and so all of these factors kind of play into each other. And when you get back to how are American soldiers being trained, there's definitely this cultural expectation that like there will be women, there will they will be available as if that is some sort of commodity that is expected. Um, and that really factors into expectations soldiers have on the ground when they arrive. Um, plus when they arrive, they're staying in cities at the beginning and you arrive into Saigon um, and there are not very many men left, there are fighting. And so a lot of the people that you're working with at the bases or in the bars are women. So you just have general human interactions that are happening um, and, and leading to these relationships. Mm -hmm. And so once I started to kind of recognize that they were moving soldiers based on relationships with civilians and civilian women, they're, you know, they're creating multi-million dollar bases outside of cities just to kind of stave off issues like venereal disease or, um, you know, cultural impacts. Um, you know, issues with soldiers being drunk in the streets, those kinds of things that are happening. So they're, they're playing into each other. And I think, you know, just seeing how much of an impact that, you know, daily behavior of these non-state actors as well as soldiers are having on the way that the military is framing their positioning and how the governments are framing, you know, both their war efforts and the rationale for their war efforts. Uh, was really interesting to me and and became kind of that main focus. And so I think that just kind of focusing on that foreign relations bit was, um, it kept drawing me back and, and kept it from becoming like a straightforward, just kind of like study into soldiers or things that it, it all was connected. Thank you so much. I was interested in what, um, who, which scholars, uh, which historical graphical um, trends shape your methodological approach in developing the study? Yeah, I, I thought about this question a lot over the years, so if I could pin it down to a few, but I think I took, because I came at it from a lot of different angles, I was trying to study from, you know, an American military perspective, a foreign relations perspective. I was also trying to understand the Vietnamese perspective as best that I could, and um, from gender studies, from all of these different entrees, and, it became so many different scholars whose work I was trying to piece together into something that was, you know, a coherent book. And I think a lot of this really hinges um, on, you know, my primary mentor during my dissertation, who was Hang Wen. And, you know, she takes an international approach um, in her research and everything that she does. And she really pushed me to do international research. And so from the start, um, I had plans that this book had to be, you know, researched coming out of you know, Australian sources, um, British sources, looking at French sources, looking at Vietnamese sources, looking at American sources. And so I wanted to find as many avenues into this as I could. Um, and, and I think she had a lot of, you know, a lot of a role to play in, in just thinking of how to frame a book like this. Um, when I started looking at how to structure the book, I was really influenced by the scholars who had done this type of a study for other conflicts. So, you know, Mary Lou Roberts book had just come out of uh, what soldiers do, um, which is just such a great like look at World War II and, and prostitution and dating and rape during that conflict. And she's able to address all those issues so well. That was really inspirational for me. And she, of course, builds on, on the great work from Petra Goodin and Marie Hone and Kathleen Moon uh, for the Korean War. And so all of their work is just really 
influential for what I do. And when I think about, you know, Vietnam War studies, uh, bringing in different roles of, you know, cultural elements from Mark Bradley, or studies of gender from, you know, Heather Sturr, Karavuik, yourself, of course. Um, and then, you know, I really also wanted to study soldiers' experiences because so many of my sources came from, from soldiers themselves. So I thought it was important to see how people had studied those. So of course you, um, you know, Kyle Longley and Christian Appy's works were super important for getting to that. And then I, I, while I was editing the book, I was teaching up at West Point and had the opportunity to spend a whole lot of time with a whole lot of soldiers. And so just getting into their mindset and thinking about how they work and how they study and that kind of thing was really fun. So yeah, it was definitely on the shoulders of many, many giants um, to put together something that comes from this many perspectives. Um, but it was great to have so much to work with. Thank you so much. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about your favorite finds, especially as you're describing the multiple archives that you visited. Like, are there certain perspectives that emerge only because you visit that particular archive? Um, or were there particular stories that sort of surprised you? Yeah, I, I think the, I, I wasn't originally planning to have a chapter on sexual assault and, and rape. Um, and when I went to the National Archives, I, I didn't expect to find too much. I hadn't found a lot um, in the sources. I, there had been a lot of work done on me lie. That's where the bulk of the court martials come from. There's only, I believe it's about 30 total court martials that are completed related to sexual assault um, throughout the entirety of the war. And that conflict had been written about quite a bit. So I hadn't planned to do a whole chapter. And when I went to the National Archives in College Park, they had some military police blotters um, and I was able to pull um, a couple years starting around 68 and it was from a small um, town a little bit north of Saigon and it was just basically the daily records where the police um, would military police American military police would write kind of what had happened throughout the day and as I'm flipping through them I just start realizing that so many of what the accounts that they're writing about are accounts of assault um, they're very rarely where they called that. Um, sometimes it would be called like violence or just like disturbance. Um, and then the write-up would be something that would clearly indicate sexual assault, like a woman whose clothes had been ripped off and she was bleeding um, or had just different elements and, and factors that, that you can piece together as this is what it was, but they weren't writing it. And going through these, these police blotters, you know, I was able to find so many accounts of this that it made me start thinking about different terms to search with and different approaches and recognizing that just because it's not a court martial, you know, doesn't mean people aren't writing about it. It's written somewhere. And so I was able to start pulling in different types of sources. And that led me into a lot of um, anti-war movement um, publications that had been published in South Vietnam, particularly from like the Vietnamese Women's Union and those types of organizations. And they would often cite their sources and you'd be able to track that and find more things and talking to different people over time, um, piece things together. I also had the opportunity to interview uh, Laylee Hayslip um, about her experiences with assault throughout the war and rape. And she was able to give me some really enlightening perspectives um, on how to approach the issue and how to write about something that was deemed as, again, just as prevalent as, you know, prostitution throughout the war. Um, 
but hadn't been written about even close to as much or as frequently or, or even made as light of in film. Um, of course, it, it, it just was prostitution is already a taboo topic um, when you're trying to find it in the archives and, and rape and assault is even more so. So those those documents really took me in a direction that I hadn't initially planned on going in. Um, but I'm really glad that I did because I think it's so important to give voice where you can to those victims um, and try to piece together how that fits into this overall conflict for sure. Thank you so much. You were mentioning oral histories and um, you also talk in the book about how it, you're writing about a taboo topic um, and especially when people are recounting uncomfortable experiences in their lives that they may be reluctant to shed insights about their own actions or the actions of others. I was wondering if you can say a little bit more about maybe some of the challenges of doing oral histories and then what did you what did you make of those challenges? Yeah, I if if I was going to start this book over, that would definitely be the avenue that I would I would push harder to get. Um, it would be more oral histories, and I I had trouble. I got a couple interviews um, from different people, and and several of them, after having the interview, would say, "Please don't use any of this," you know. Um, or don't use my name, and then it's very hard to use it as a reliable source if I can't actually quote someone. And so it starts to become more difficult to use them. People became really nervous um, to talk about these experiences, even, um, you know, just, you know, day-to-day -day occurrences or, or dating that they, if they dated someone. Um, I didn't have anyone other than Laylee Hayslip who, who spoke to me about sexual assault. Um, I had hoped to do some more oral histories when I was in Vietnam for some research, um, and, and none of them panned out. Um, none of my offers were accepted. And I've, I've known some people who have done, you know, great work in this area. Um, and I've cited a few in, in the book. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that should be being captured is more oral histories, more interviews with Vietnamese women in particular about their experiences. And, and I think you know, the biggest challenge is, is the language, you need the language skills and you need to build trust and you need time, you know, to be there in Vietnam. You can't fly in and just say, hey, or call someone and, hey, do this interview with me. You've got to build this relationship and show how the work's going to be used. Um, and I, I just think that would be a great project for someone to take on. Thank you for sharing that. You mentioned in the book that prostitution looms large, that that is really where the bulk of concern and discourse lies. Um, but you also mentioned earlier that you found friendship to be a really interesting um, topic to explore. So I was wondering if you wanted to say more about either prostitution or about friendship. Yeah. Um, I think prostitution looms so large because it becomes really easy to parody in film. Um, it's, we, have so many accounts of it. People talk about the sensational. And for many people, this idea of prostitution is a sensational topic. Um, they, they don't view it um, as like a normal or mundane thing and, and they want to you know, address it. And so every soldier writing home to his buddies or writing his memoir is going to talk about his experiences if he were to have visited a prostitute or if he didn't and he wants to write about it anyway. Um, and so you, you see a lot of that it's also something that I think American politicians were able to kind of easily grab onto as being like, oh, this illicit practice, right? This thing that Americans are doing. And so if you have a stance against the war, 
Um, and that's where the title of the book, An American Brothel, comes from, is this Fulbright quote where he's saying that all of Vietnam is turning into an American brothel, and it becomes this big war of, like, how dare you say that? Like, that's, um, it's offensive to everyone involved to use this terminology, and so, you know, Fulbright throws it out there, and it just becomes kind of this, like, shocking moment for so many people trying to understand what's happening in Vietnam. Um, like, how dare you say Americans are doing this? How dare you put this on the whole nation of Vietnam? And and so it's this back and forth, and it but it gets people's attention. And I think that's why prostitution kind of plays such a big role. Um, it's also a really easy commodity to trade in in the middle of a war. And so it becomes a way to, to make money um, for a lot of people, and not even particularly the women who are working as prostitutes, um, but people who are employing them or finding ways to put them in a position where they must work as prostitutes in order to pay off certain debts. Um, and so you have you have this this kind of culture that's being built up and then becomes easy to sensationalize after the fact in culture. And so it, it just takes up a lot of people's mental energy when they're thinking about what's life like for soldiers on the ground. And then on the other hand, you have these friendships and you have women who are working in bases and just kind of have relationships with with soldiers in kind of a passing nature. You have a lot of American women who are serving um, Caribou talks about all the different roles that women are playing in the war and when they're over there they're building relationships with Vietnamese women and they're doing outreach and they're talking um, and those kind of things can get lost and it becomes really easy to create you know Vietnamese women as an other rather than Vietnamese women as an equal and someone who's also you know fighting for freedom and and having a stance and just trying to survive throughout this conflict that they're living through and so I wanted to make sure to like engage with those relationships. They're not written about as much and they're definitely not reflected as much in popular culture, but they're happening. And if you look at, you know, throughout the sources, people often talk about, oh yeah, this was this person that I knew or I met with them regularly or I talked to them. And so I think it, it just comes down a lot to how we remember the war becomes a lot of, you know, what people are studying from it in different ways. And so pulling together all those different parts, I think is really important. That's really wonderful that you can shed light on these dynamics. Um, I also wanted to um, ask you, because obviously a lot of the focus of the book and also at that time is on the figure of the Vietnamese woman, but there's also American perceptions and assumptions about Vietnamese men. And so I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about, about both aspects. Yeah, this is something that I, I you know, wanted to engage with more. And I, and I worked with, um, especially as I was revising into, into the book and thinking about Olga Dror's work on, on how she writes about Ho Chi Minh and this idea of like, if, you know, the effeminate Vietnamese man from the perspective of a, of a white American male, right? And of course, all of this is pushed out on the public from Lyndon Johnson in the early 60s and, and how he's describing Asian masculinity. Um, and so it's really interesting to see how American soldiers kind of engage with those ideas and they seem much more comfortable talking about Asian women than they do about Asian men as it goes through. Um, but I think pol like politicians and, and Johnson in particular, he just finds it really easy to try to undermine Vietnamese men as much as he can by bringing up ideas of, of gender and sexuality and, and how they compare to, to Americans in his own view of the world. 
it's definitely, you know, a stark contrast to how they want to describe, you know, Americans out there. And I think they use that for a lot of propaganda reasons. Thank you so much. Um, I'm curious about your perception of the field of U.S. and the world, diplomatic history, military history. Do you think there's still resistance to thinking about how central sexuality and intimacy is to the understanding of, of, of the conduct of war, the conduct of diplomacy? And why, you know, if that's the case, why do you think that's the case? Do you think it's changed? You know, how do you think it's changed? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question when you think about it. Um, like how have the fields changed? And I'm also thinking how has public response to that changed and these ideas? And so I found, you know, I've been probably presenting about issues of, of sexuality and military history for a decade now or so. And I've never faced too much resistance, you know, in, in, in conference presentations or even to my publications necessarily. Maybe once in a while, someone will be like, yeah, what's the point? Uh, but very rarely. I, I think that the field is pretty accepting. Um, I'm not sure that everyone in the field is going to jump in and write about it. You know, like I, I, I'm not sure that it's it's becoming the most popular avenue into this or why certain people will choose to write about military history um, or foreign relations. Uh, but I think that it, it's got merit and people are recognizing the merit to it. Um, and I think that if there is still resistance, that it's it's definitely waning, um, or at least polite. I think there. Um, when I went to West Point, I worked on some some textbooks of integrating gender and sexuality into you know the curriculum of how do we study warfare, and that was more interesting. You know, breaching these issues with you know a bunch of eighteen year olds, uh, primarily male, um, talking to them about why they need to understand military history through a gender and sexuality lens. Um, and that led to some really fun debates uh, with students and getting them to, to consider these things from the outset. And so I think from an academic perspective, for the most part, you know, the fields are, are welcoming to it. I see a lot of panels when I go to conferences now that will engage with issues of gender and sexuality and, and even though they're not the majority of, of the panels and I don't think they ever will be. Um, but it is, I think there's definitely a more welcome field than there may have been a decade ago. And I just want to wrap up by asking if you have any advice for first time authors. Hmm. Oh, keep it organized. Yeah, it takes a lot longer to put out a book than, than I ever realized it would. Um, let's see, and the time it took me from wrapping the first draft of the book to having the book published this year, I've probably three different jobs, five different houses, a baby, a pandemic. And so, you know, when you're thinking of like, oh, I really wanna add this element, you know, I'm revising, I wanna build out this chapter that wasn't here before. I know I researched this at this or that place. And then you've gotta find, you know, your hard drive that had it and the hard drives are of course not labeled, they're just in a stack. So. I think like just really good record keeping of where your research is, like know where your research is, keep it organized, keep it linked to what you've got going on. And when it comes to the actual, you know, writing of the book, I think everyone has advice for writers and, but everyone's really different in how they write. Um, and you've got to find what works for you and try out multiple things till you find it. I think I, 
when I first started working, I, I read a lot of books of like how to be a good writer. And then I would try them and I would be like, oh, that's not working. I must not be a good writer. And so I was like, oh, I better try something different. And I, and I ended up finding that I, I worked really well by writing in big chunks. Um, I knew other people who had to write consistently, you know, a couple hundred words a day. But I, I built um, I built some accountability among some friends. And so I had my best friend and I would trade like page a days back and forth when we'd get stuck in a rut and we wouldn't do anything. So just find someone who's willing to at least accept your work. Like, I don't think she ever opened a single file I sent her, but she, you know, it was someone to receive it each day to make sure I was writing something when I'd really get stuck. Um, and then one day I'd wake up and I'd write 30 pages because that's just the style of writing that I do. So um, it's just, you got to find what works for you. Don't take it too hard if you don't do exactly what the how to write well book tells you how to write. So I know you're starting a new position. I was wondering if you want to share what's in your future, either for that position or perhaps if you have new research projects that you have in mind. Yeah. Um, so I've I've left kind of the teaching track in academia and I'm gonna be the curator from digital collections at University of South Florida. Um, and so I found all that archival research, I found that I really liked it um, and uh, really appreciated being in the archives and, and working with primary sources on a daily basis. Um, and so doing a lot with, with digitizing those primary sources, making them available to scholars um, and, and accessible as much as possible. And I'm still um, doing research um, in military history. I just had a chapter come out on, on sexuality and violence uh, in the American military and, you know, Balancing, balancing those worlds and having a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Amanda. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Authors in Conversation, the United States and the World series podcast from Cornell University Press.